Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Today, we're talking with Fran Ayala Somayajala, the president of REACH, which is a social impact organization on a mission to make a meaningful impact for both providers and patients. Her current work crosses the chasms of maternal health as well as virtual reality therapeutics. One thing that is certain is she's passionate about tackling big problems in innovative ways. You're going to love hearing her. So let's get to it. Today we are here on another episode of Hit Like a Girl podcast, and we are with Fran A. Sharice and I get to to have this wonderful conversation. Fran, can you please take a moment to introduce yourself and share us about your piece of the health IT puzzle? Sure, I'd be happy to. First off, I just have to say I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm Fran Ayala Somayajula. I am the president of REACH, which is a global social impact organization. And, you know, we're just really focused on helping improve the overall experience of healthcare for both patients and providers. We've seen a lot of struggle and persistent challenges in the industry. And I'm just being in it for over 25 years as an epidemiologist and public health professional. I'm tired of you know, seeing the same statistics and seeing things go and the numbers moving in the wrong direction. So very eager to do something different. And the way we do that is by, you know, not accepting the status quo by, you know, really trying to get out of our tribe and work with others to really focus on areas where we believe that we can make a difference and emphasizing research, education, innovation, and thought leadership as the core activities that we do to accomplish the work that we're about. 
So I feel like I want to know two things. One, I want to know about your journey where you're saying you've been in healthcare for 25 years as an epidemiologist. And two, I want to know more about REACH, the nonprofit. So which one would you like to start with? Well, I guess we could start on the my background side, I suppose, first and foremost. So my background is epidemiology and public health, and I don't like to count the numbers. I think after you reach 25 years, you just say 25 plus, you don't actually say the number. <laughs> But I started off my career working for PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, which is part of the World Health Organization. It focuses on the Americas and, you know, spent a lot of time along the U.S.-Mexico border focused on infectious disease. In those days, predominantly HIV, AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases were a big focus area. In addition to that, I worked with the Ushumba, which is a U.S.-Mexico border health association. So I spent a lot of time with the sister cities in Las Cruces and El Paso and many of the others along the border and working with migratory farm workers and, you know, just a real variety of diverse individuals in the various communities extending, you know, support and helping to understand some of the dramatic effects of infectious diseases as well as chronic disease, non-communicable diseases as well. And that work, you know, really equally led me to doing some things on a national and obviously global scale working for PAHO, which I enjoyed doing. And then later on in my career, working with the Department of Commerce, which has contractual agreements with multiple agencies, including working with the CDC and other areas of NIH on what were known as NAMSI and HAMSIs, which are the National Ambulatory Medical care surveys and the national hospital surveys. And these this was data collection across a several states, large regions where I would lead the collection of data that appears in the morbidity mortality weekly reports. So again, when I said in my introduction, you know, I just got tired of looking at the numbers going in the wrong direction. It's because I was really involved in a lot of the numbers. And I've actually found that very depressing. But one thing that's quite unique is that when you're in that space of working with the data, you're working with the systems, right? Statistical systems. And that translates into technology, right? Informatics. And at that time, I was sort of in the right place at the right time because I understood both the technical side of things, right? Um, the databases and the systems, even the GIS, the global inf information systems, et cetera. And at the same time, you know, was very strongly rooted in healthcare. And that made for a great opportunity because there weren't at that time a lot of people like myself who really understood both sides of the house. You could speak the language and of technology and be able to translate that into a language that was understandable by the healthcare systems, right? And from then, that's sort of when I transitioned into roles that were really more uh, digitally focused. So when we talk about use of, you know, technology like telehealth today or the use of webinars and all these platforms that are out there, you know, these platforms have been around for a long time. The difference is, is that the systems have become more stable and more reliable and scalable and affordable. And thus, we've seen, you know, more of the ubiquity of them. But I really entered into the space of uh, the role of e-business and e-digital strategies many moons ago and have really enjoyed having roles such as the, you know, the e-business strategy for all the global, uh, the rather the Asia-Pacific markets for companies like Bristol-Myers Squibbs and many others. So yeah, just really enjoy that and be able to take 
my learnings of experiences working not only with providers, but, you know, various population groups such as Aboriginals and being able to, you know, take that into having a greater appreciation for what works and doesn't work and the things that we need to consider as we start to adopt tech. I'm kind of concerned about the digital health equity and making sure that everyone has access. And so that's in a way kind of what led to reach, right? So there's the kind of the two stories coming together is back in 2016, I started a foundation known as I Belong, which is focused on really improving access to health literacy, to education, to resources in non-traditional spaces like libraries and recreation centers, places that are within the communities so that people could actually have access and not have to go out of their way to gain access to the things they need. How convenient it is, right, that a mom could go and de-stress in a class on stress management with our program called I Be Healthy, while her children are sitting and reading books in the library. So this is the kind of thing, right, that we were really focused on. But we wanted to go broader than that because we realized that there's a real need to ensure that patients and providers are communicating and that ultimately the health outcomes for individuals is as much about the relationship with those who are to be providers or stewards of care as it is about the individual and what they can do for their own self-care and what the resources they have at their disposal. Wow. Oh, go ahead. Well, I just keep thinking what a big deal that is. One, like amazing that you're able to turn your like despair and things that you've been able to see into something good and start, you know, doing action into the community. But two, I wonder how do you community, how do you make sure everybody's on the same page? If courses or workshops or educational classes are happening at the library, how is that also connected with the providers and making sure that like all of those pieces are somehow connected and communicating with each other? I wouldn't say that that was what the intent of that was, Joy, (laughs) right? So the intent of that initially was around empowerment of the individual around wellness. So what typically happens in an encounter with a physician or with a healthcare educator is that they'll tell you that you need to be more active, that you need to exercise, that you need to diet, that you need to watch your blood pressure. But they don't give you access to blood pressure monitors. They don't, you know, most of the time they don't educate you on how to use the blood pressure monitor, how to interpret the data, what to do once you have the data. They'll tell you you need to manage your stress, but they won't tell you where to go to manage your stress. So in the early days of what we were doing, we're really just hyper-focused on number one, making resources that could help to answer those questions available in the community. It wasn't about technology. And I think that's a really important aspect is that it's not all about technology. It's about appropriate utilization and availability and accessibility of technology when and where it can be leveraged. Today, we're moving into a different space where we are putting a greater emphasis on the application of some tools. We started our program so early that in those days in 2016, you know, you really didn't have the same degree of of ubiquity around use of mobile devices as you do today. So I think even to that extent, while it would have been nice to have had it available, where we used it was in very specific places. Actually, interesting enough, we were using it for web-based education. So we did have a web-based system that was focused not only on older adults where, excuse me, on on the general population for stress management, where they could register, et cetera. But we also started emphasizing programs for older adults. And we partner with a program called Self-Help. 
and essentially providing for individuals, older adults who have limited mobility, access to health and wellness on an online environment. So for us, when the pandemic came, we weren't affected by it with those programs because we were already online with them. But in relation to what you're asking around that communication with the clinician, that's the piece that we're starting to be to build into our systems now. But an element of that is really a lot of emphasis on educating providers on how to leverage the, these programs, right? So it's kind of like as a growing entity, really trying to first figure out and support the needs of the masses and then move over once we feel like we've got them in a good place to begin to focus on supporting the needs of the clinicians as an integral element of that. And that's sort of where we are today. Wow. First of all, I know that with me, a lot of the initiatives I work on align with yours. It fascinates me. I know even before we got on this call, I was just um, talking with another group. We were going through some data sets and that type of thing. There's so much data we have around these different issues, right? So my question to you would be, with so much available to us in terms of data, and we know what some of these issues are around Black maternal health and around um, older populations not being able to um, access care and digital equity and those type of things. How does your organization decide what to tackle first and how much attention to give to those um, topics, those initiatives? Sharice, that's a great question. So one of the things that we have is we have a, a faculty that helps to guide us in identifying our priority areas or our themes. So our faculty represents you know, four continents and seven countries, and they come from some of the leading institutions from around the world. And we're really proud of that. But an element of that is that they are evangelists for digital health, but they are also you know, specialists within their area and they represent a variety of you know, specialty or therapeutic areas. And we bring them together to identify and, and to prioritize what those themes are going to be areas of focus. I try, though, however, to you know, really work towards making the themes broad enough that we're able to accomplish a lot of work in a variety of what would be sub-therapeutic uh, sub areas. So let me give you an example of this. An example of this would be in the area of health equity, right? Health equity is a theme for us. And underneath that, there's sub-focuses that we do get into. But by elevating it to the level of health equity, it enables us to be able to really sort of charge forward with, with initiatives that have a broader impact than just one population of people or one population of or one sub-therapeutic area of focus. You know, I always get concerned when like organizations, they'll decide, they, they have to make a decision many times, right? They'll, they'll either decide to be they're focused in an area like you'll have very specific organizations or institutions that are just focused on kidney or and, and or just focused on diabetes and you need those. But as sort of a broader community, what I see what ends up happening in healthcare is that they become like, you know, the therapy of the year sort of thing. Just like you have the, you know, just like you have the the flavor of the month, you know. So like this nationally, we're just gonna focus on this particular issue, you know. And we'll do that for a year or two years. And then all of a sudden it stops. Well, I'm sorry, but maternal health is not something that should be a conversation for just a year or two years. It's a conversation until every woman has access to care. Every woman is safe in her delivery and her postpartum. 
And that becomes a challenge. And I, you know, I recognize why those dynamics exist, but we try to be avoidant of them. So then another theme, as an example, is uh, VR therapeutics, right? Virtual reality therapeutics. And to focus on VR, for us, we look at it across what I sort of describe as sort of the, the four key pillars or main pillars of VR. And we emphasize that. So there's a ability for us to then influence behaviors, education, awareness, and research in ways that can impact multiple areas of need and opportunity within the application of VR, whether that's in you know, mental health or oncology or cardiology, which are you know, even in the area of um, coloscopy. Those, you know, these are areas where there's, there's been a lot of application of, of VR technology, but for us, we're trying to raise it to the level so that providers across therapeutic areas see the value and begin to apply it. You know, we kind of are in a system where we have the older clinicians. I work in the medical education space. So we have the older clinicians who are very, they very much push back against too much technology. I'm a firm, I'm a futurist. I firmly believe that um, technology and innovation can remove some of the biases from the system. So I'm a firm believer in it. And I do see the younger medical residents coming along will embrace it more. How do you get clinicians to buy into the idea of a VR or any type of innovation to solve some of these problems? Well, first off, I wouldn't say that it's easy. However I put this, it might come out you know, eloquent or it may not. But however I describe it, um, I don't want to give the impression that it's easy. But I will say that the first place you've got to go is with them, right? What's in it for me? Even when it comes more broadly to AI, there's a lot of apprehension. You know, there's this impression that the technology is here to take over and to replace. But what we need to do is come to a place where we recognize that it's allowing us to be able to address challenges like clinician burnout and reducing errors, right? When the, you know, the, the, third leading cause of, you know, death is injury. And within that, right, if we were to drill down into those numbers, that's inclusive of medical errors. Well, then that's an area of of opportunity and to be able to convey that. The other thing is to focus in on the clinical workflow. And so to the extent, and this is in part on those like myself who are out there evangelizing, not only for the adoption, but also for the good development of technology, is that we really overemphasize the clinical workflow and how we can make for frictionless experiences for clinicians. You know, the catastrophes of the adoption of EHRs isn't because EHRs are bad or because, you know, managing, uh, dictating and managing records, charting is bad. It's that the way that it was introduced was bad, right? And so I think that that's a really big element of it. The third component of it too is making sure that those who are being expected to consume the technologies have a seat at the table, that there's parity, inclusion, and representation, that they're involved, not just in one aspect. Usually like someone will go and design and then it's like, then they'll go out and they'll find some users and they'll keep looking for users so they find some who will accept it just the way that it is. Right, because they don't want to take the time to go back and make any changes. So really what needs to happen is bringing them in from the very beginning, be part of the design process and to carry out their involvement and participation all the way through to the end and to adopt an, if really a, you know, a continuous improvement 
approach to the way that we develop and that, you know, clinicians are part of that. And it's not just physicians, but I do deliberately use the word clinicians because a lot of the technologies that we deploy are actually utilized by many other players in the healthcare system, right? And it's not just physicians, so. So can you talk a little bit more about the VR applications specifically in the maternal space? Like what would a patient experience and how is it supporting their outcomes, better outcomes? Yeah, so there is the way that it's being applied today, and then there's the way that it could be applied, (laughs) okay? So I'm going to just kind of start off with when we look at VR, you know, those categories that I was referring to earlier are, you know, medical training, right, as well as continuing medical education. There's also patient education, and then there's surgical planning and diagnosis, and then there's also for the treatment, So those are sort of the categorically the areas of opportunity. Now, if we look at this in the context of the maternal health space, which Joy, that's what you were asking about, right? Maternal health and the maternal health space, then where you've seen the bulk of the activity occurring for maternal health has been in the therapy, right? In the treatment arena of it, as well as in the education, patient education piece. So on the one end, it's, you know, used as a form of therapy for addressing things like anxiety. And then on the flip side, it's being used for patient education, you know, informing the mother and the family and the partner about, you know, the gestational phases of pregnancy, what sort of the what, you know, what can you expect when you're expecting the on VR, right? But if we were to take it to the broader applications and opportunities, some areas where it has been underutilized is, for example, in surgical planning and diagnosis. So to be able to, you know, leverage, for example, what we call DICOM files that come from like ultrasounds and MRIs, right? CT scans, those DICOM files, there are applications out there that are able to digest those images and actually render them back without any real true manipulation, just representing the 5,000 files that are generated when you produce these scans back so that you're actually able to do segmentation and analysis and identify anomalies. We've seen use of that in areas like oncology, as well as neurology and, and cardiology, but we haven't really applied that so much in the maternal health space, but that could be a, a great opportunity, right? as we have to sort of, in some instances, decide, you know, what approach to take in addressing complications that may present in pregnancy. Now, in many cases, of course, in pregnancy, there's a lot of urgency, right? Urgent conditions or emergent conditions for which we, you know, there wouldn't necessarily be time for that. But there are plenty of opportunities and cases for which it would, you know, be deemed appropriate. The other, and I mentioned, was around training and continuing education for providers. This is a great area because, and while, you know, there's sort of two things that come to mind and there are many of examples, I'm sure you guys have got some of your own that you're probably thinking of. One of these would be in the area of empathy. We know from the data that our organization REACH has conducted that over 70% of women say that their clinicians lack empathy. And so being able to train clinicians on how to be more empathetic, there are some awesome tools out there. Embodied Labs would be a, you know, a great example of this where you literally you put on the headset 
and you step into the body, right? You embody the experiences and the being of another individual. This could be particularly helpful for even females who, you know, some some clinicians who have never given birth to a child themselves, right? We think we relate because we're, you know, if we identify ourselves as being female and we think we relate to each other in that manner, but if I've never given birth to a child and now I'm supposed to like, you know, inform you on lactation as an example, that might be a challenge. And I may not have the, the have the empathy there or dealing with women who may be burdened by obesity or, bur- or, or being over or overweight, right? And, and managing them in pregnancy, but not knowing how to appropriate approach that conversation. And I think to be able to step into a scenario in which you embody what it's like for another individual will make it will really help people in thinking differently. And then the last thing I'll say on this, because I could go on forever. <laughs> the last thing I'll say on this is as a second example is on that training and education side, you guys were mentioning earlier around uh, residents, right? And junior clinicians who are more natives to the technology. They're more comfortable with it. But, you know, the real opportunity in this is to take those rare cases and be able to present the rare cases, the ones that you talk about in the textbook, and then you never see in practice, right? You go all the way through residency, you've never seen it. And here it is 15 years later and something comes up and we errors occur, you know, situations that could have been addressed aren't addressed because it's been forever and a day since you saw it in that textbook. And then our response to that when something tragic happens is, well, it was a rare disease and that's supposed to make it okay. Well, I can appreciate the situation and that and, you know, scenario, but I also understand and appreciate the value that the technology like VR has to be able to reintroduce those scenarios, right? And to do it in ways that are, are like near lifelike. And as a result of that, help to better prepare clinicians to be able to recognize and to know what to do in those instances. Because in maternal health in particular, it's the four delays, delays in seeking care, delays in transportation, delays in diagnosis and misdiagnosis, as well as delays in treatment that are causing the deaths that we're seeing in the United States as well as around the world. You know, you talk in my language when you say these things. I always, there are two statistics I give all the time. Joy can attest to it. We know that in the third year of residency, that's when um, doctors lose their empathy. We know this. It's statistically proven that they lose their empathy. And we have found no system for putting that back in. The other thing is during their um, training, historically, doctors were trained to believe that women of color don't experience pain the same way and at the same depth. So, and I truly believe that that's still, they are just working in the um, space. I, I truly believe that. And from my own dealings, So I really believe that VR and other types of um, innovation can help in that space because how else do we normalize trauma-informed care and those types of things? So I'm wondering, there is such a sound, you know, an atmosphere of silence in medical education. How do we get systems around the education and the training part of it to buy into the idea that these solutions 
because you know there's a cost associated with it too that they claim they don't have. How do you get them to buy into the idea that this can help? Can I uh-huh. add to that question too? Because sure. I want to uh, like what's coming up for me is the uh, like practical application and access. So on both like the training side is the VR headset the kind of thing that we want to start incorporating into training. Like somebody has to get a textbook and they also need to get a VR headset so that they can do their empathy homework. Is it something that sits in a clinical office or is it something that it also gets prescribed to the patient and maybe gets paid for by Medicaid. So yeah, so yeah. so you've given me two ends of that, Joyce. So I'm gonna I'm gonna first start with the one that's closely tied to what Sharice asked about was in relation to the institutions, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it from the patient standpoint. Okay, all right. So from the training standpoint and how you get these institutions to buy in and what does that look like? And Joy, you were already kind of going there visually in your you, you know in your sort of description or of getting a textbook and getting a headset because that's what's essentially happening. We are seeing right now, it's still early stages, but we're seeing the beginnings of curriculums being redesigned for digital technology and inclusive of VR. So as an example, even in Colorado, you know, one of the, the major universities here is in, in Colorado is has a virtual Godiver lab. The cost of Godivers is, is exorbitant and they're few, because in part because they're few, right? Greater demand than supply. And so they're, they're few out there. And so one way to address that issue is to give students access to VR. So they've got virtual Godivers and, and literally a virtual Godiver lab where they step in and are using VR. So that's a great example. Another is in Illinois, right? With the University of, University of Illinois, where they are training with VR. What they have found with one solution provider is that the cost the time, I should say, the time and the cost associated with training students is reduced. They're able to use VR and reduce the lecture time from 50 minutes down to 15 minutes. And that's significant. And not only do they reduce the time, like, okay, less time to train, that's exposure time. But what about the retention, right? The comprehension and retention, they've gone up. They've shown increased retention, increased comprehension. So that's huge. And as a result of that, you're then seeing curriculums being redefined. Even in nursing, as an example, when we look at VR perioperative nursing is a great example. Uh, It's difficult to train for perioperative nursing. And so, and oftentimes it's it's trained on the job, right? You're being pulled in, you're in the OR, and you better be ready to pull up that equipment and do it correctly. And you do a lot of shadowing as well. And, you know, we are resource constraint when it comes to nurses just as much as we are to physicians. So to have, you know, two people in that process of training becomes quite expensive. So to use VR technology to train them, we're seeing in the continuing education uh, departments of hospitals, because, you know, as healthcare professionals, you have to maintain your credentialing. One area where we're seeing more increased adoption is in VR being applied for various areas of training and mastery of skills. So it is coming along. It's not at the speed at which we would like to, but you know what? Neither has been uh, remote patient monitoring. It's taken a long time and neither was telehealth, right? Telehealth was long, along decades and decades before it ever got applied. And in many respects, VR itself has been around since the 1980s as well as when it was first introduced. And here we are today. But I think one of the things that's making a difference is number one, a degree of research 
and where we are not only finding sort of the qualitative benefits, but the quantitative, the financial benefits, the financial returns are being identified. And that's making a difference. And it's resulting in groups such as the FDA and the ONC taking a closer look at this particular you know, area of opportunity in digital health. And so I, I anticipate that we're going to see some real changes occurring. And that then also then translates into patient application as well. You know, there are some clinicians who are getting savvier about and working along with insurance providers to gain their cooperation in the use of VR for such things as like pain management. And so I think as we begin to see the benefits of that, we'll see a more opportunity and why that matters leading into the question, Joy, that you were asking about patients use and opportunity is that what we anticipate then is that it will create for greater opportunities for more people to have access. But, you know, one of the things about reach is that we're, again, not being about the status quo. I mean, like, if we can't do it in the system that exists, then we create our own system. And one example of how we're doing this today is with a partnership with a company called Behavior and their nurture program. So under REACH, we have several programs. Maternal health is one of those big areas. We have the National Save Moms campaign. We have a new platform for moms called Happy Mama. And what we do is we partner with others to extend and create for affordable systems that are easy to use and and everyone can access. And so we're creating right now this program in which it's called a a buy one, give one, where if you purchase a VR, the nurture VR system from behavior that you can then, you're likely only to use it for a six month period. The program is essentially a six month program. And then you can return it and it's refurbished and given to a woman in need. And as a thank you for that, you know, that REACH also provides a tax eligibility. We're a 501c3, so we give a tax deductible eligibility letters for those women who choose to do so. We're also strong arming as best we can the arms of device manufacturers, right? Groups like AMD have been awesome for that when it comes to blood pressure monitors. When we first met, I said to them, I, you know, we've got a problem here. We're being told to know our numbers, but we don't have devices to know our numbers with because most people under the age of 65, unless you've been diagnosed with a cardiovascular disease, don't have blood pressure monitors. And for women who are in a situation where they'd have to choose between their groceries and a blood pressure monitor, I think they're going to choose their groceries. I know I would. So how can we work on reducing the cost? So that's the kind of work that REACH is involved in. And those are the kind of partners that we're working with. And in that particular scenario, they were, they were very responsive and we were able to get the cost of blood pressure monitor down to $20, which you know I think is pretty awesome. And we're continuing to do that kind of work with other device manufacturers as well. Okay, so let's take it down a notch. This is, of course, Wellness Month. And we always like to ask our guests, What do you do to stay well and balanced in your life and career? That's a tough one. A couple of things. Number one, every morning I start with a glass of water because we don't realize how dehydrated we get. So I always have my my water with me and I start my day with that. And that's where I, I begin my day. The other thing is I tend to practice an attitude of gratitude as much as I can. So prayer and acknowledging my blessings, even with every meal is important to me. It's not, for me, it's not even about, you know, who you're praying to, but 
it's about recognizing all of the blessings that we have. And for me, that helps to keep me in check. And then the second thing is, you know, having a, having a good set of girlfriends, you know, that I can call on. And when nobody is available, I actually call a prayer line so that I can have somebody who I can, who can help me in my affirmations and remind me of who I am and, you know, the space that I'm in. And that helps to keep me in check. It really is very good and a good idea to have women around you who you can rely on. Sometimes I'll make the jokes if I'm having a you know a difficult day or whatever. I'll tell Joy, I'm like, guess who my therapist is today? It's you. So, you know. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> how do you feel about the idea of networking for women for? I would say network from center, but for not only friendship but allies within workplace because for women it's difficult and we do have those stresses during the workday. How do you handle that? I would say first off that it's really not easy. I'm I just have to be authentic and real. Okay. So I like shared with you my history and my my career and, and you know there's a lot of stuff I left out of that, but I try to give you an abbreviated version of it. And there were a lot of times when I felt alone. And I even felt alone with other women where I didn't feel like there were other women who were on my side. And in, I don't know, now they've got some new name for mentor. Like it's not that you need a mentor, you need something else. I don't know. You're always coming up with reinventing something. But in the old days, you know, we back in the day, we called it a mentor and I never had a mentor. I went and I bought a book called Be Your Own Mentor. I still use that. <laughs> I still use that book today, Be Your Own Mentor. And that's, you know, honestly, it's a sad part. It's a sad part of the reality of the way things are. It can be very very lonely. That's why I said, like, when you don't have anybody to call, find a line. <laughs> I found a hotline to call <laughs> because you need that. And as we get older, a lot of times too, it's like it's difficult to make friends. I move a lot. So I'm always on the move. You know, before the pandemic, I would spend literally 145 days on the road and I would have the Marriott would send me a letter saying, you know, thank you so much for spending 145 days with us. And that's, that's why I know how many days I was on the road. Because, you know, the hotels would remind me. And what that results in is that it leaves you sort of unrooted, right? Like you don't have the roots. Like I've lived in San Diego for over 10 years. And I, you know, really kind of had struggled for a long time in finding those roots. And so one thing I, you know, being involved in, and this is ironic because I'm involved in a lot of organizations and I create organizations, but it still can be rather lonely, So I have found it beneficial, particularly when organizations, when companies offer programs for women. So for example, the San Diego Women's Network put on a, they put on an annual conference. And even though, you know, our team is global and we're all over the world, I notified everybody. And they're not all women, of course, but I notified the whole team that this program is available and that we were going to invest in you know, folks being able to participate in that because I thought that that was important. But it's a struggle. Sometimes we think that it's you know other genders or whatever that are causing our problems, but sometimes we're creating problems for each other. And we need to pause and figure out a way to like treat each other better. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that's part of the my own personal mission, which is like, how do we change the culture of like letting each other know that we're 
a community and we're here to support one another and that we are this huge network of women who like we have wisdom and knowledge and nourishment to offer each other and we need to get more comfortable. I know that I need to get more comfortable with reaching out and tapping into it. I tend to have issues either asking for help or asking for support. But then I notice like if I off, if I try to be the thing that I'm better at, then it tends to re, to like regenerate itself. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes not so much. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like there's like this, all these receptions, right? You go to these conferences and they have all these receptions, which are great and whatnot, but net, they're supposed to be for networking. But I noticed that usually people will come in and they'll come in in pairs most of the time or they'll come in in groups. But I'm the kind of person who I don't have, I guess, I have nomadic tendencies. I travel. I go through, do things very independently. I'm the kind of person who will go to the movies on my own, you know, and I will go, right? And I'll go to a networking event on my own. And there's some days where my energy is high and I'll just jump in at a table and I'll just start introducing myself. But then there are other days where, you know, you go in and if I didn't make that extra effort then it won't happen. I'll go in and I'll hold my drink and the guy will come by with the hors d'oeuvres and I'll grab an hors d'oeuvre and that's what, that will be my conversation for the night. So I think it's also to not just about creating spaces for people to get together, but it's also about creating instances or instigators in the room that help facilitate that dynamic interaction. That's why speed dating works because there's someone who's orchestrated, they're forcing you to interact with one another, right? And we did a get together that was a networking lunch where we had ambassadors. Every room had an ambassador and they they had a specific role. They were to ensure that they stayed on topic. They were to every make sure everyone got an opportunity to speak, which meant if you needed to like, you know, in a very, again, polite manner, encourage people. And I recognize them, welcome them into the room. Like, could you imagine that? Could you imagine going to a networking session and someone comes, not just the person at the desk where you get your badge, but when you get into the room, somebody comes up to you and, and greets you and says, hey, how are you doing? And, and ask you a couple of questions. And maybe they use questions that like, give them the key words they need to then say, oh, I should introduce you to so-and-so. And they take exactly. you to a group. Like, wow, that would be like, so I'm calling on you, Sharice and Joy. I'm seeing this in your future that you guys are going to pull this off. <laughs> I think so. I mean, definitely take that feedback. I was at a women's networking event recently and I've noticed about myself that I clue into a table where there's only one person. To, that, mm -hmm. that it is being the person that you're describing that I'm like, okay, she's going to be my new friend. And mm -hmm. instead of going to the table that is filled with people and they're already communing among one another, it's like, how can I make that person feel more comfortable? And that's been super... Joy's better at it than I am. I usually yeah. find a table in the dark corner where I'm an introvert. I'm like, I'll stand over here. <laughs> That's exactly right. The, yeah, it, it really is how I am. Um, I was fortunate. I went to a networking event at Hems, which we all just attended. And it was the Hems press um, reception or whatever. I just thought I was fortunate. I'm like, oh my God, there's a table in the corner. They must have put that there for me. But people gravitated over towards me. And like the people who came over were of that same, like, oh, can I hide over here with you? That type of thing. So then we started talking. But normally you don't see that. Like no one... 
there's no one whose job it is to engage everybody. Like you were saying, like maybe there should be something for like women in the health health IT community that's like speed networking or something like that. Because I there am really all is about nothing. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm all about that. That's how we did our, I was like, I can't put on this event and not have ambassadors in the room. Like I've got to have people who are going to help everybody. Otherwise, you, what are they going to talk about? That's the worst. You go to an event and, or you go to a program and you're supposed to be networking and they're not even talking about the things that you thought that they were going to talk about or you go to it and you don't meet a single person, you know, and there's no reason why even in a digital, I mean, that was the thing with our networking. We had to quickly revert from being fully in person to being Mostly, we were four fifths attendance online digital, and we got really great response. Was the reason why we got that response was because we were very deliberate in our efforts to make sure that everyone got a chance to meet other people. Well, I love that you're so thoughtful and intentional, and incorporating that into all the areas that you are working. I want to know if people want to work with Reach or want, like, is there volunteer opportunities? How can people get involved with your organization? Because you're doing a lot of good out there in the world. Oh, thank you so much. Well, there's two ways you can go about it. One is you can go to our website, which is Reach TL. So it's Reach T as in thought and L as in leadership.org. Or you can just email me at fran at reachtl.org and I'd be happy to connect you. We have over 36 volunteers and they are just amazing people and we don't overburden anyone, right? It's a great way to get to, to meet other people and to do something that's significantly meaningful in the community. So we'd love to hear from everyone. Wonderful. Well, thank you for spending so much time today with us. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and your organization. And I guess any parting thoughts, one thing I would like to ask is, I guess, do you have any advice for women following in your footsteps other than networking and kind of being an ambassador? But I'll leave it open. Yeah, you know, I recognize that we often say practicing no, but for me, no means need options. It's an acronym. No means need options. So think about the options. Why do you have to just say no? What could be the alternatives be that could create an open up doors or opportunities? I think that, you know, negotiating and being creative are two really strong skill sets that folks should develop. And, you know, I think it creates for amazing journeys. That's been the case for me, you know, to start off in public health. I mentor a lot of graduate students in public health, and they often think that they're going to be stuck in health departments. And there's nothing wrong with that because those are great roles. But sometimes it's kind of like, well, is that the only path for me? What are, are there no other options for me? And I say, there are so many options for you, right? And you just have to be willing to be creative and be willing to, if you're not willing to say fully yes, then say what your options are, right? What, what options you need, alternatives you need so that you can make the choices and have the opportunities that are right for you. And that's really what my, the progress in my career has, and growth in my career has always been about. And I, I feel very fortunate for that. But I also think that others can be as equally for, fortunate, so... I love that. And I think it also gives people an opportunity to practice that negotiation skill of Mm -hmm. like, if it is a no, what, I mean, if your worst case scenario is a no, it's like, well, there's only up from there. How can you find something that's going to work for you? So thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. Sure. If, and I'll lastly, if there's anywhere that people want to find you online, 
and just follow your work, where would the best place for them to be? Always our website, but you can also go to um, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Okay. <laughs> Did I miss one? I'm on Facebook too. Come to think of it. All right. I'm on all the pl- yeah, <laughs> just Google my name. If you if you can spell the last name, A-Y-A-L-A-S-O-M-A-Y-A-J-U-L-A. <laughs> there aren't that many of us in the world. I love so, it. <laughs> so you're likely to find Fran or Francis Isla Somiagela out there and, and you can definitely follow me. Don't just follow me, join me. I'm not about followers. Don't follow, join. <laughs> love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Fran. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.